Well, thank you so much again for being here this morning. <clears throat> what we are studying every time we study the Word of God, every time we study the Word of God, what we are studying is the most essential and fundamental truth about our lives today and forever. Amen? There's a lot of stuff in life we need to know, but there's only one thing that we really need to know mostly, and that is this. <clears throat> we must know the Word of God, not just as an informational issue. I know this. I know that. I know these three things. I know that's great, and that's important. But we must know the Word of God Himself. We must know this one, this man, who is Himself, the very eternal living Word of the Father among us and in us by the Holy Spirit. We must know Him. Because to know him is to have eternal life. Remember John 17, 3. Not to know him is not to have that life. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for receiving the instruction of the Lord, not from a man, hopefully, but hopefully in and through a man, receiving the instruction of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Correct? So thank you for being here. So you remember last week, we're continuing in our talk concerning the I am statements of Jesus. When Jesus says I am, which is the Greek, ego, ami. And there are two types of I am statements that Jesus makes in the New Testament. One group was which we're studying to this week and last few weeks and next week is an I am statement without a predicate. Remember, a predicate is that group of words following a verb that says something about, describes the verb itself. I am handsome, someone may say. Well, the word handsome is a predicate. It, it tells you something about what I am. But the statements that we are talking about are not the seven I am statements that we'll continue with in the next several weeks. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. But we're talking about those I am statements that don't have a predicate where Jesus says, I am. Those are the foundational claims of Jesus as true as to his true identity. And when we get into the I am statements with a predicate, I am the bread of life, etc., those are the statements that describe or qualify or amplify through examples, especially from the Old Testament, or what Jesus is saying about himself. So that would be the difference. So when Jesus says, I am without a predicate, he is talking about his essential nature who he is 
in himself that is so shocking and so earth-shattering, especially to the Jewish leaders. So you remember last week, we learned that Judaism is a monotheistic faith. What does that mean? It believes in one God, but this God exists in Jewish understanding of the faith. In Jewish understanding, this God exists as a singularity. What does that mean? That he is a single God, only God, yes, but there are no other persons or divine persons in this God. There's just one, the singularity. And we learn that Christianity is also a monotheistic faith. We believe how many gods? In one being who is God, one. But that this God exists and manifests himself as three distinct, equal, divine persons, each one possessing fully the divine nature in himself, but not by himself, which means this, that the Father is fully God in himself, but not alone. The Son is fully God in himself, but what? Not alone. The Spirit is fully God in himself, but what? Not alone. This is critical. This is critical. And so you remember last week when we learned that Jesus, or the week before last, when Jesus in 858 of John says what? Before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, I am, I exist. And when he said that, what was the response of the Pharisees? In verse 59, they picked up stones to do what? Throw at him. This is what they heard. And in the capacity of their understanding, within the context of their understanding, hear what I just said, within the context of their understanding, of their reading of the Old Testament, of the Tanakh, of the Scriptures, they were correct. Because this is what they heard, Debbie. Jesus is undermining our monotheism. Our monotheism is a Unitarian monotheism. And so what Jesus is saying by saying, I am, he is saying that he himself is preexistent. That he himself has existed with God, equal with God. And when they hear this, what do they think? They understand him to say, I am another God separate from but with God. Therefore, that is not monotheism anymore. What would that be? Polytheism. This is what they understand. And within the context of their own understanding, they were correct to throw stones at him. You do get this within that context. So, the question now for us is this. <clears throat> was Jesus, by saying, before Abraham was, I am, 
Was he undermining the historic monotheism of Israel or was he clarifying it? Was he destroying the faith of Israel and establishing a new religion in himself? Or was he speaking about the monotheistic faith of Israel as declared throughout the Tanakh? The Tanakh, remember, is the Old Testament. But he was now bringing it to a greater light of understanding in himself. That's the question for us. So where's the answer? Where do we look for the answer? Where's the answer? The answer is in the Tanakh. We must go back to the original, what we call Old Testament scriptures, and examine them to see whether or not what Jesus is saying about himself is actually in keeping with the revelation of God that he gives about himself in the Old Testament. Now, why the Tanakh? Because, you see, the Old Testament is the root of the revelation that God has given about himself. Please get this. The Old Testament is the root of everything that God reveals about himself. It's not just an old book that once in a while I read it, but man, I'm a New Testament man. And the New Testament is the fruit of that revelation that God has said about himself in the Old Testament. Now, there are a few who teach that really it's the New Testament. That's where we really need to be. Well, I'll tell you what. Dane up here is a dentist. And if you have a bad tooth that is really deeply bad, what are you going to have to do, brother? Go down to what? The bone, the root. Or Dane could say, you know, don't worry about the root. <laughs> we'll just deal with the fruit, the tooth itself. We'll do a little of this and that, and we'll concentrate. What's going to happen to your toothache? It's going to still be there and maybe even get worse. And you better not ever go back to this dentist because he got it all backward. What we see on the outside is a revelation of what's on the inside. Isn't that right? That what you see in my mouth is a revelation of what was there in the beginning and what's still there some kind of way, I suppose. So don't let anybody teach you the Old Testament is secondary and unimportant. That's not biblical. Jesus didn't believe it. Paul didn't believe it. Nobody in the scriptures believe it who are speaking from God. So all of that is to say this. This means that all that God has said about himself and has revealed about himself, his nature, his character, his purpose. May I repeat that? All that God has said and revealed about himself, every bit of it, every bit of it, is first foreshadowed, presented in the Tanakh, and then brought to light in its fullness in the New Testament. So that means this. There ain't nothing new in the New Testament. 
as far as its essential truth. What is new in the New Testament is the revelation in fullness of what is already presented in the Old Testament. Do we get this this morning? Extremely significant to know this. So this means that typically if I ask most Christians, where do we see the gospel beginning? What would most people say? Matthew, right? When does the gospel begin? Well, it begins in Matthew with the birth of Jesus. When does the gospel begin? In Genesis 1. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. That's the beginning of the revelation and reality of the gospel. That's where it begins, Tammy. That's where God first announces himself. And that's where God begins to unfold all that we need to know about him and about ourselves. Amen. So the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of what we see in Genesis 1.1. I've said this before, and this is my personal opinion. The revelation that we see in Genesis 1.1 is the most, most breathtaking, awesome, incredible, unbelievable revelation in the entire Bible. You say, well, I thought it was the incarnation. I thought it was the cross. I thought it was the resurrection. No, those are the outworking of what we see in Genesis 1.1. The most breathtaking revelation about our God is Genesis 1.1. And you've been in this class before. You know why I say that. And I won't take my time to explain that. This God who is self-existent, self-contained as far as his need is concerned. This God chooses to share himself with the creation at the greatest cost to himself. You talk about humility. You talk about service. You talk about self-denial. You talk about grandeur and glory. It's Genesis 1-1. Do we see that? Everything else is an unfolding of what is contained essentially in Genesis 1-1. I insist on this. Why? Because we need to make sure that we see the Bible from kiver to kiver. Remember? Cover to cover. Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. As one mighty revelation of this awesome God whom we serve. It's not a bunch of this. It's just one thing. Trailing systematically, simultaneously, comprehensively throughout. So the end speaks about the fruition of what we see in Genesis 1-1. And everything in between shows us how God works it out. There it is. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 3.8. The scripture, that's to the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the scripture, seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. 
So when did the gospel begin? If someone asked you, where's the first time we see the gospel, Joe? Genesis 1-1. Okay? Genesis 1-1. And Jesus affirmed the same thing. Remember in Luke 24-44. All things which were written by me in what? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Tanakh must be fulfilled. So this morning, we must look in the Tanakh to verify Jesus' claims to be a distinct, divine, co-existent person with God. If his I am statements are true, they must be verified. So Jesus, by saying I am, is saying this. I am a distinct, co-existent, co-equal person with God. Do we understand what he's saying here? Now, before we look at this, let's make one thing very, very clear. Make sure you get this very clearly. I understand what people mean, but I don't like it. Unless it comes from the scripture and it's been explained. So I can tolerate it or go with it and actually appreciate and, and, and um, what about if it's explained correctly. Jesus has been here all the time, has existed forever. The answer is yes and no. If we're speaking about Jesus, this man, in whom the eternal pre-existent son dwells, then yes. If we're talking about the humanity of this man as pre-existent, then what's the answer? No. Why? Because we read in Matthew 1.20, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Correct, Steve? The body, the man, the body and soul of this man started at a particular moment in history. And so in relation to his pre-existence as the son of God, Jesus has always been here. Is the son of God pre-existent with the father. But as to his pre-existence of the human body and soul, the answer would be no. Do we clarify that for you? So when someone says Jesus is always, I, I think what the better part of valor is to say, okay, great. What do you mean by that? Could you explain that to me, Kurt? What do you mean when you say that? And let's make sure you're correct in your statement. So when we look in the Tanakh, there are 60 or more passages that identify a unique I will say this even, peculiar interaction of two equal, coexisting divine persons. One is the Lord, Yahweh, remember, the Lord. But the other is the angel of the Lord. And there are about 60 of these passages that are explicit, and more that are there implicitly. So we look in the Tanakh, and all of a sudden we see evidence of something peculiar. Because you see, if God is Unitarian, what do I mean by that? Just God, no one else, no, 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 you know, then what is God talking to himself? Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. You want to do it? No, no. You know, uh-oh, we got a problem here. <laughs> So we must look for evidence. Is there any evidence in the scriptures 
that show us that, yes, this God is, in fact, a plurality. What does that mean? Two or more. You remember plural? How many is plural? How many? Two or more. It's okay. Two or more. That would be the answer, I think. Of course, in today's math, no telling what it is. So, Sarah, is there anything in the Old Testament that indicates? Yes. Now, when we read the words, the angel of the Lord, be very careful. That does not mean that every time we read the word, the phrase, angel of the Lord, or the title, that is a divine person. Because the word angel, angelos, in the Greek, it just simply means a messenger. Someone who is delegated by someone else to take a message and who represents someone. So what happened? The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Do you remember that? Did you see the movie? That's not God. That's not a divine figure. That's a messenger from God to tell him that your wife has conceived by the Holy Spirit. So don't put her away. Don't divorce her. Do you remember that? That one's not God. So how do we know the difference? Well, we look to see if the word angel is capitalized. No, that's not it. Although this capitalized because others have already looked. So how do we know whether there's God? We look at what this angel says and what this angel does. Is what this angel say, says and does proof that this angel is divine. Are we, are we understanding me this morning? So every time you see the angel of the Lord, yeah, that's a lot in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that's God. But when it's under a certain, within a certain context, then we see something very different than just a messenger. And here's what we see in these passages, and I'm just going to list a couple of them, three of them or whatever today. We see this. In these passages, and there's about 60 or so of them, this angel speaks for the Lord. Fine. But then he also speaks as if he is Yahweh himself. There's, there it is. He not only speaks for Yahweh the Lord, but then he says and does as Yahweh. Do we see the distinction? Very important that we see this this morning. Why? Because this is the crux of the kind of revelation that is required for us to determine the veracity, the truth of Jesus' words. It's not true because Jesus said it, and that's it. Don't ever think like that. It is true because what Jesus says is first verified and demonstrated in the Old Testament, and then next week we'll know all of that is true because of one event. So we must know these things. Why? Because, you see, Satan is going to continually challenge our faith at its root. 
This world is going to challenge our faith as, as at its root. The word says to cohabitate before marriage is what? Sin. The word says that marriage is between a man and a woman. Correct? The world today is saying, all that's old-fashioned, and that's not the case anymore. And to the terrible destruction of the revelation of God, too many churches and believers are beginning to agree with the uh, the world. Why? Because the reason they can do that is at its root, the disagreement is about who Jesus is himself. Because if we truly believe who he is in himself and what he's done, if he is actually the totality of the truth of, about, and from God, then anything and everything he has ever said and done is absolutely binding forever. Amen? And so the world, Satan, is continually attacking the root of the existence or the reality of who this, this one is. Oh, it's not saying that Jesus is not Lord, Celeste. Don't believe that. It's just saying these things, you see, what he said, it was in a cultural context, don't you see? And, and, and Jesus didn't have all the information, don't you see? He didn't understand all the science, don't you see? The world has progressed past that, don't you see? And so it's okay for us to be this way as long as we love Jesus. We love Jesus. Haven't you heard this before somewhere? Do you hear these kinds of lies? There ain't no loving Jesus if you don't believe him and believe who he is. Amen? You can occasionally say amen, not to applaud me, but to applaud the truth of what God is saying. So let's look at a couple of these passages. This angel in which this angel is simultaneously distinct from and yet co-equal and co-existent with the God of Israel. So let me read the first passage. I think, is it in your notes, Genesis 16, 7 to 13? And I told Anna Chatelain, I'm not going to mention her leaving early. Okay? Now, <laughs> I told her I would not do that. She said, I'm not sitting up front because I don't want to disturb the class. So um, we're not disturbing the class to see that Anna Chatelain is leaving early. Right? Everybody understand that. I'm not disturbing the class. I wouldn't want to do that. I've never seen that lady move so fast in my life. <laughs> With two steps, she's out of the room. It's a good thing that was on a hundred-yard dash. Chris, you would have lost that one against that lady, believe me. <laughs> okay. Let me read this passage. And look, listen carefully to what is being said in this passage. See if you can make or hear or look at, identify the distinction and the equality and the coexistence. Genesis 16. Now the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, 
found this is uh, Hagar. Remember, Hagar was a servant of uh, Sarah. Remember, Sarah said, get out, get out. Okay, so Abraham put her out. Now, the angel of the Lord <clears throat> found her sitting by a spring water in the wilderness. Now, who found her? Come on, come on. Let's look, look out. Who found her? The angel found her. Who was this angel who found her? Okay. An angel can find you, correct? That's nothing, right, Sean? Shane, rather. Right? That ain't nothing. Angel found her. Okay. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Okay. All right. Just asking a bunch of questions. And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Oh, wait. Okay. Huh. You see, when angels speak for God, they say, this is what the Lord says. But all of a sudden, this angel is himself giving instruction in authoritative instruction to someone. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, here it is. Look at verse 10. I, who? Who's I? The angel of the Lord. I, I myself, me, I will multiply, greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Where have we seen that statement before? Is this the first time we've seen that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does the Lord say to Noah? I'm going to multiply your seed, your, your descendants. What does the Lord say to Adam? What? I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you. Do you remember that? No one can do this other than God himself. All of a sudden this angel is speaking with a whole lot more authority than a normal angel because normal angels don't have the ability to multiply anything. The angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you or a God who sees. You see where the angel is speaking what? As if he himself is Yahweh. Mary, you see that? Now, how do you know this is Yahweh? Because what happened? Hagar had a son whose name was Ishmael. And the descendants of Ishmael are very much part of and a very large part of what? The Arab people today, right? The Semites. Yes. Millions of them. Did the word, did the promise get fulfilled? An angel can't do that. Look at Exodus 3, 1 through 6. That's the great appearing of Moses before the bush. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Here's that angel again. When Yahweh saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses. Now look at that. There it is right there. Do we see it? Moses came and the angel is in the bush. 
And then when Yahweh saw, see, making it one, then he said, then Yahweh, um, yeah, the angel says to him, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, how can an angel say that? Remember, in Judges 6, 22 to 24, when Gideon saw that he was the angel of Yahweh, the angel who appeared to Gideon, he said, Alas, O Yahweh Elohim, Alas, alas, O Lord God. That's how you would read it in your books, your Bible. He sees the angel of the Lord and he recognizes this angel as the visible manifestation of God himself. And Yahweh said, peace to you. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh, and he named it Yahweh is Peace. What's going on in these passages? What's going on here is there is an activity of two divine persons. I think I have it just listed as a note for you, perhaps, but remember in Judges, um, Joshua chapter 5, you remember that? This is the eve of the great battle against what city? Jericho. And Joshua and all the army of Israel is ready to go in. And this is a mighty fortress of a mighty people. And so Joshua's out there praying or whatever. And he looks up and he sees a man standing in front of him. A man. And this man has a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua all of a sudden realizes, if this is the enemy, we're in big trouble. There's something about this man that causes Joshua to say, who are you? Are you for us or for them? I just got to know. Are you on our side or their side? He says, neither one. I am the captain of the hosts of Yahweh. Okay. Maybe it's just an angel with a big sword in his hand. Right? Because to be the captain of the Lord's host doesn't mean you're divine, does it? Does it? In and of itself, Phyllis? No. Somebody else said somewhere that Jesus is the captain of our salvation, but you suppose you'd have to look that up. Same terminology. I am the captain of the hosts of the armies of Israel, of God, rather. Huh, man, this is an important dude. But what then does he say in the next verse? I think I may have that in your notes. What does he say? Take off your shoes. 
For the ground on which you stand is what? Holy ground. How can an angel say that? Linda, they don't have the authority to say that. Where have we heard that statement before, that command before? Where? When God himself manifested as the angel of the Lord said to Moses the very same words. And there are many, many more passages, many more passages. So when Jesus says, I am. He's not saying anything that is absolutely unique, having never been said before in its essence, and can't be verified in the Tanakh. He is saying that I who stand before you as a man, I am that angel of the Lord who appeared with Yahweh and spoke as Yahweh. Do we see that this morning? Are you with me this morning on this? Everybody okay with this? Ain't no other religious leader or figure in all the world at any time has ever been so bold and brash and crazy to make that kind of a claim. There's only one man. Unique to Christianity. Only one man. Just one. So what we need to do is to do two things for next week. And I know some will be out for carnival and whatever. And y'all who are online, listen. Keep up. We need to discover, is there any event that verifies this? Because what makes it true? So what? So this Galilean carpenter was crazy, right? Oh, you think you're God? We saw you die on the cross. You ain't no God. And we need to not only look at the event that in and of itself totally and completely verifies the Jesus' claim, but then we need to look at at the absolute startling revelation that God is saying in this event through a particular title. We got it? See you next week.